You're listening to Home for Christmas, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, Pastor Ryan Hughley discusses four ways the season of Advent invites our hearts home. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. This Advent season as a church family, uh, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know we're really trying to do two things in this series that we've called Home for Christmas. Um, by God's grace, we're seeking to release the expectation that the holiday fantasy we are fed should in fact be our reality in order to receive the invitation to come home to Jesus in a way that makes room for us to be able to experience the fullness of life lived between two arrivals. So remember, that word Advent comes from another Latin word that means arrival. And so at this time of year, we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus at his birth. But in addition to that, we also anticipate and we wait for this second arrival of his return. And so what that means for us, living between these two arrivals, is that even if the holidays are hard for us, and I know that the holidays are hard for, for many of us, and I want you to hear at the outset that that's okay. But even if the holidays are hard for us, Jesus invites our hearts home through these themes of Advent, of hope and peace and joy and love, all of which were made possible through his birth. And so, so far over the last month, we have spent time with the realities of both hope and peace. And this morning, we're going to shift our hearts and minds to the invitation uh, of joy. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning and you want to open those, go to Luke chapter 2. I want to go really actually go back to the story that we were in last week uh, because I think there's more there for us to see. So go to Luke chapter 2, if you would. Um, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 10 and 11 in just a second. But we're going to call this message, Joy, the Invitation to Sit with Good News. The Invitation to Sit with Good News. Now, I would argue that the theme of joy is of the utmost importance for us to give careful attention to for at least two reasons. The first reason is that joy is a distinctively Christian virtue, and it is bound up in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, many of you know this, but joy is listed by the Apostle Paul as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, which what that means is because of the Spirit's presence within those of us that have put our faith in Jesus— and his empowering grace within us, joy should be an ever-growing experience and characteristic in the life of everyone who walks with Jesus. Uh, it's also spoken of all over the scriptures. In fact, there are north of 30 different Greek and Hebrew words that we translate into English as the word joy. And Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, they're an amazing example of this because in just those two verses, there are eight different Hebrew words that we just translate into English as joy. So what that should signal for us, just like these last two themes that we've already looked at the last couple of weeks, joy is a far more rich reality than we can typically comprehend. It is closely related to, though not synonymous, with gladness and with happiness. It differs from those in that joy is actually far less of an emotion in the biblical sense, and it is far more of a state of being, or maybe most specifically, joy is an attitude spoken of in the scriptures. 
And so in addition to all of that, the experience of joy is inseparable from the person and the work of Jesus. And to show you this, I want to draw your attention back to Luke 2 this week and the announcement that the angel made to those shepherds. So if you weren't here last week, uh, just after Mary uh, unexpectedly delivers Jesus in Bethlehem, angels appeared to shepherds who were doing the same thing they did every night, which is to sit with their flocks and to protect them. An angel appears and says this in verses 10 and 11. He starts by saying, don't be afraid. Because remember, the text tells us they were terrified by the sudden appearance of this angel. So don't be afraid for look. So here's the reason that he gives to assuage their fear. Don't be afraid for look. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news of great joy. So according to this angelic being, the birth of Jesus was and is the ultimate source of joy in our lives. And so the first reason that joy is important for us to give our attention to is that it is distinctly Christian virtue that is very much bound up in the personal work of Jesus. But there's also a second reason. The second reason joy is important to give our attention to is because of how elusive it is in our daily experience. And, and by that I mean... The human soul is like a sponge for bad news. The human soul is like a sponge for bad news. Now, we all know what a sponge does when it is submerged into liquid, right? It absorbs whatever it is it is um, submerged into. It absorbs that liquid. And that's what our souls do with difficult evil, unsettling, scary information and experience. Our souls just absorb all of that. The human soul is a sponge for bad news. In fact, my guess would be you've probably noticed how much more easily it is for you to be consumed by bad news and difficult experiences than it is for you to be consumed by good news and experiences. And what I want us to really understand is that that in no way is a reflection of you being a bad Christian. Just because you have a tendency to absorb bad news versus good news more easily, more naturally, it has nothing to do with the quality of your faith. Here's what's interesting. As it turns out, when it comes to joy, your brain, like your literal actual brain, is more adversary than it is ally. And this is because of a reality called negativity bias. Now, if you've never heard that phrase, phrase, negativity bias is a cognitive bias that results in adverse events having a more significant impact on our psychological state than positive ones. And so negativity bias is why we tend to internalize insults and criticisms more than we do encouragement and compliments. Like, my, my guess would be if you think all the way back to your childhood, somewhere in your brain you probably have locked away some of the worst things that have ever been said to you. They stick with you, whereas I bet it's harder to think back on, man, there was that one time when I was seven. Someone was so encouraging to me. But some of my earliest childhood memories are the worst things that have been spoken over me. Like, I, I think I said this in a sermon before, but I have this distinct memory. I think I was seven years old, and we were at a school, like, a skating rink event, and I was pestering these older girls because I was a player, and... Uh, so I skate in front of them, and I hear one of the girls go, you've got a big butt. I was seven. 
I still, right now, feel the shame that I felt of just like, do I? Like, what is happening? So, but that's negativity bias. Our brains latch on to those kinds of words spoken over us. It's also why we're more prone to dwell on difficult and traumatic events than enjoyable ones. It's why negative reporting by the media is so much more compelling to us than positive reporting. It's why we doom scroll on our phones. And so I, in 1998, a social psychologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder named Tiffany Ito conducted a study that found that humans react more intensely to negative stimuli than they do to positive. And so the way they conducted this study was they got 33 different study participants and they showed them various images while simultaneously having their brain's electrical activity measured to identify response. So they were shown three different types of images. They were shown neutral ones like a plate or a light switch. They were shown positive ones like people enjoying themselves. And then they were shown negative images like a gun being pointed at the person's face who's looking at the image. And so that, that was their study and here's what they found. Their study found that the most brain activity occurred when participants held the negative images. And so researchers concluded that negative stimuli more strongly influences individuals than positive ones. And so I found this image that depicts this most simply for us. We, we can be surrounded by like a sea of good news. And for some reason, if there's like one piece of bad going on, that tends to be the place that we focus our attention. We're like a horse with blinders on where we can't see any of the good around us, we just see everything is awful. And that is because of this reality called negativity bias. Human soul is a sponge for bad news. And that means joy is not something that just comes to us. It has to be cultivated. When even your own brain is working against your experience of a Christian virtue, like you know you're up against a fight. That has to be cultivated. And so here's the big idea that I want to lean into a little bit this morning. Joy is the fruit of the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus. That's how it happens. If you're just sitting back waiting one day, the Spirit's just going to sprinkle joy on me, and then I'm going to, that's not going to happen. Joy is the fruit of the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was and is good news of great joy. We have a Savior. We can flourish. Jesus is renewing all things. Jesus will eventually restore all things. He is with us, and he won't leave us. He is our comforter. He is our healer. He is our helper. We have good news. The problem is we give so much of our attention to the bad news. And so the question is, how do we begin to make the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus? And for those of you, most of you, know me well enough to know, I am not arguing for the ignoring of hard things in our lives. My point is just to say, your brain latches onto that stuff on its own. It doesn't need your help. What we do have to do in order to embrace the full story is to lift our eyes off of that once in a while and actually look at Jesus. That's how joy is cultivated in our hearts. And so, uh, and how are we going to go about making this daily choice to give our attention to Jesus? And in her beautiful book, which if you've not read it, I highly recommend, Liturgy of the Ordinary. 
Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. And she says this. She says, our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. Our hearts and our loves, and I would argue our minds, are shaped by what we do again and again and again. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to just briefly talk about a daily practice, a daily practice to develop a joyful attitude. Three things, it's made up of just three very simple components that if we employ every day asking the Spirit to help us be mindful of these, it will cultivate more and more joy in our hearts. But this is not like a buffet where it's like, we'll pick this one on Tuesdays. No, this is a daily practice that we should employ all three of these things because it will greatly benefit us. So we'll start with this. Number one, and this probably won't come as a great surprise, number one is to savor Scripture. Savor Scripture. Now, one of the things I'm most passionate about is helping people learn how to actually sit with Jesus in Scripture. And maybe the single element that I continue to find most important for that to actually happen is spending more time with less Scripture. And I want to explain that a little bit because I'm convinced that evangelical culture more than any other has taught people to prioritize quantity of reading over quality when it comes to the Scriptures. So... I grew up in the church. I've been in Christian churches the entirety of my life, and especially when I was younger, I just remember from the youngest age hearing that it was the mark of deepest devotion if you read the whole Bible every year. My whole life I've been hearing that. I'm going to be like a Navy SEAL of Christians. Whole Bible, every single year. And, and so because I've been hearing that message for so long, I've had a long time to think about this. And so I want to share a couple thoughts with you about that. The first is, there can be tremendous value in reading through the whole Bible in a year. There absolutely is. I've done it many times, and I would say most specifically, it can really help you understand the overarching story and message of Scripture. That being said, it is nowhere commanded in Scripture to read the Bible every single year. It's not commanded. And for most of human history, it wasn't even possible because people didn't have the Bible. So my point in that would be, maybe we should hold that loosely in an open hand. That there is value in it, but it isn't commanded, and so it should not be this chain of legalism around one's neck. It is very hard. And every, t every December, I see all of these blog posts and articles, reading through the Bible is not really hard, it's 15 minutes a day. Yeah, 15 minutes a day for a month in Leviticus or Ezekiel <laughs> is not easy. It doesn't take very much time, but it's difficult reading. And so it is very, very hard. And because it's so hard, it can make Bible reading very discouraging. And if you get so discouraged that you stop reading, that's not a win. And I don't care where you crap out. What matters is that we have a daily practice of savoring Scripture. And it can also be if you have any kind of learning disability, like dyslexia, if you struggle with any amount of something like ADHD, trying, trying to get through that much every single day is, in, is just terribly difficult. So we should not put that as a burden on every single person. And maybe most significantly, I would argue, is that reading large sums of scripture is strong on information, but it's weak on transformation. And by that I mean skimming for basic comprehension, which is the way that we read when we read a large sum, that has minimal transforming effect on our hearts. So it's good, but it's not the only way. In a very practical sense, quantity fills our heads, but quality transforms our hearts. So 
Both are good and necessary, but we have neglected the latter for the former. Furthermore, at least six times in Psalm 119, the psalmist praises the practice of meditating on Scripture. And he uses this Hebrew word, sinudhed, and in short, it means to reflect deeply, to contemplate what it is that God has said. So for instance, in verse 15, he says, I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. And so here's what I would offer to you. Unless you really sense God inviting you to read large sums in the new year, I want to invite you to spend more time with less scripture. Any amount that really keeps you sitting with scripture on a daily basis. So for instance, right now I'm reading through Acts very, very slowly. I read about a paragraph a day. I tend to read it more than once. I try to read it slowly. And I start by asking the Spirit to draw my attention to what it is that he wants me to see. And then after something begins to kind of surface, I just start to talk to him about that in my journal. And so hearing from God each day, which is what I believe, when we pray and we ask, Spirit, help, help me to see what you want me to see, and then something begins to surface for you, don't allow cynicism and skepticism to creep in and go, well, that's just captured my attention because of something going on in my life. Yeah, that's how God works. And so begin to talk to him about that. It strengthens our relationship with him. It reminds us that he speaks. It keeps us growing and it strengthens our faith. And more than anything, it's the most obvious way for us to give our attention to Jesus. Joy is the fruit of the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus. And so if we're going to build a daily practice that helps us cultivate an attitude of joy, first thing is we have to be a people who savor scripture. Secondly, number two would be to store up gratitude. Store up gratitude. Psalm 136 verse 1 says this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. One of the most powerful tools for cultivating joy is recognizing the wealth of reasons that we have for gratitude. God is good to us in an almost countless number of ways, big and small, every day. The challenge is his goodness often goes unnoticed. And so I think about it kind of like the way that we tend to stop noticing the beauty that we are surrounded by here in Salt Lake the longer we live here. Like for those of you that aren't from here, you, you probably remember, like me, when you moved here, like those first couple of months of living here, there were a couple of times I literally almost drove off the road because I was so distracted by how enormous and stunning our mountains are. Every time I would come out of a store, every time I walked out our front door, I was stopped in my tracks by everything that surrounds us. And even though I, I do work hard to try to appreciate this beauty, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that the beauty at this point is so normal Oftentimes, I can go a whole day and not even notice it. And that's the exact same risk that we run with God's goodness. God's daily displays of goodness are so normative that we often fail to notice them, which invites us to keep fighting for awareness. And so here's a way that we can remedy this. Either in the morning or in the evening, just take a few minutes to store up gratitude using a form of the prayer of examen. 
I'm not going to do a real deep dive into the examen, but it's a way of reflecting on the day, specifically trying to recognize where was God at work in my day. It's very, very simple. Just start, again, by asking the Spirit to shine a light on all the reasons, big and small, that you have to be thankful. So we just start, Spirit, would you please open my eyes to see all of the reasons that I have to be thankful to you. Then, just review your day. So imagine that you were watching like a YouTube video of your day and just scrub through that day and hit pause every time the Spirit shows you something for which to be grateful and then finally respond to him by thanking him. And my encouragement would be to write that down in a journal or in your phone, but just listing, God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Big, small, all of it. Because what you will have at the end is either a big paragraph or an entire page of reasons just in the last 24 hours that you have to be grateful. And especially when we are in seasons of trial and difficulty, this is essential for us. Because again, we slip into this place where we believe the trial is everything. And it's not. It's one part of one thing that is happening in your life at any given moment. And it may feel huge, and it may feel consuming, but it is only one part. And so we can allow this practice to open our eyes to how many ways in which God is good to us. Joy is the fruit of the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus. So if we're going to build a daily practice for developing joy, first we savor scripture, second we take a few minutes to store up gratitude, and then finally, number three, stay present to blessing. Stay present to blessing. Philippians 4.4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Pretty specific word there. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, the always there is pretty interesting, and it raises at least two questions for me. The first would be, how do we actually rejoice all the time? Right? Like, how do you actually, like, go through your, like, I got stuff to do, so I can't just rejoice all day long all the time. How do we do that? And then secondly, how do we do that in seasons of difficulty? And I would argue that the answer to both requires learning to stay mindful to the blessing that is present in any given moment. And the problem is, it is increasingly difficult in our culture for us to be present ever. Like just this week, I was sitting at the counter while Tammy was cooking dinner, and uh, she was saying something to me, but I was looking at something on my phone, and it took about 13 seconds for her to realize I was not present what she was saying. So the next thing I heard was, cool, I'll just look at my phone too, which was fair. (laughs) And to be honest, I don't really recall what she was trying to tell me because I was not present. And my mind was elsewhere, which is horribly disrespectful to my wife or to anyone that who would ever be talking to us. It conveys that what she's saying doesn't matter to me, that I don't value her voice, none of which is true, but nonetheless, that's exactly what my lack of presence conveys. And that little interaction is a snapshot for how we tend to live the majority of our lives. We are distracted, and we have the hardest time being present in any given moment. And the challenge with that is the distracted life is incongruent with the call to discipleship. Jesus is always in the present, but we tend to always be wrestling with something in the past, worried about something in the future, 
or distracted by some dumb device that we have in our hand. And all of that takes us out of the present. And so what I want to invite you into is as many times as you can, I've been experimenting with this all week long, three or four times a day when it pops into my mind, I try to stop and whatever it is that I, whether I'm driving, not like pull off the road, but like be mindful and ask the question, what is evidence of God's blessing in my life in this moment right now? And I'm telling you, it has a pretty profound effect. When no matter what you have going on, you just stop for a minute and you try to look for what, what, is, what are the expressions of God's blessing in my life just in this one moment. Like, for, let's do it right now. Stop right now and just think about this moment. We are here together, which means we are not alone. And that's a blessing that hopefully we will never take for granted again because we spent a lot of time alone for a couple of years. So just this one moment, it's a gift that we're just here together. And most importantly, God's here with us. And then there's small things like the temperature is controlled. The chairs are comfortable-ish. You know, you sat in some church chairs there, like I don't know where, why we needed to penalize people for coming to church by putting them in uncomfortable chairs, but Pastor Tyler sat in about 172 chairs, and this is the best that Costco had. But I mean, but again, the most joyful people you meet tend to be the most adept at paying attention to little things. And so the fact that the chairs are not uncomfortable is a blessing. Our space that God has given us is welcoming and safe. You have generous people right now that are in two other rooms caring for your kids. That is an incredible blessing that not everyone has. You have a God who loves you and longs to serve you well. And all of this is just a couple of examples of just right now. Every moment is jam-packed with reasons to choose joy. Every moment even hard ones. Joy is the fruit of the daily choice to give our attention to the good news of Jesus. And so the more that we employ this daily practice of savoring scripture, storing up gratitude, and trying to stay present to blessing, the more that we will find ourselves in a position of experiencing joy. And as I've sat with this this week, I've continued to come back to this same thought which might not at first seem related, but, but I think that it is. And the thought I keep having is this. The days of being able to be a casual follower of Jesus are coming to a close. That's not going to be a thing anymore. And what I mean by that is that Christian faith has had such a place of prominence and privilege in our country that it has been very possible to just be a casual Christian, meaning you've been able to walk with God at your own leisure, like a hobby. And so we can worship at our leisure, pray at our leisure, sit with scripture at our leisure, participate in community, serve and give, all at our own leisure and on our own terms. But the reality is, Christian faith has lost that prominence and privilege in our country. And while there is this huge sum of confessing Christians that mourn this, I think it's super healthy. Not because it's good that a culture be anti-God, but because it invites a more genuine relationship with him. And joy is a chief example of this. The world is not set up to provoke joy in you. The media is definitely not. 
waking up every day going, how can we provoke joy in the collection of people that make up this world? They provoke fear. It's their whole, it's how they sell everything because of negativity bias. It's super smart. I mean, it's evil, but it's smart. You're trying to make money, but the media is not set up to provoke joy in you. Life lived in a difficult world. None of this is set up to provoke joy. Even your own brain, as we've talked about, is working against your experience of joy. So we cannot expect to be casual Christians and experience lives of hope, peace, love, and joy. We have to devote ourselves to the practice of developing these things with the Holy Spirit. And so to that end, will you savor the good news of Jesus in Scripture each day? Will you store up reasons for gratitude? Will you stay present to God's abundant blessing in each given moment? Because that is how we make the daily choice to give our attention over and over again to the good news of Jesus. And I want to be honest enough to say, like, it's not easy. But we don't live in Eden. We live between two arrivals. And until Jesus restores this world to its Eden-like essence, we fight with all we have to be a people of joy. And so will you lift your eyes off of everything that is hard, everything that is negative, everything that is laborious, and will you fix your eyes and sit with the good news of Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the good news and the great joy that his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, for the source of joy that that is for us. And Lord, I thank you that you don't, you don't sit in shaming judgment toward us, wondering why we can't just be more joyful. You understand, Jesus, you, you lived in this world. Your word says that you were tempted in every way that we are, which means that you were tempted to only see what was negative. Your life was marked by trial. Somehow you endured that with joy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cultivate that same attitude inside each and every one of us. Lord, we want to learn to be a people that are marked by an attitude of joy in all circumstances. And so would you help us, Lord, to savor your word, help us to store up gratitude. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us to stay present to all the expressions of your blessing in our lives. but we can't do that on our own. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. And I want to invite you to just continue to